welcome to the preaching ministry of Port St. Lucie Bible Church. We are a Christian church whose goal is to faithfully preach Christ from Scripture so that we might better love and serve Him. We pray that this message from God's Word would engage your mind with the truth and inspire your heart to obey Christ. Here's today's message. As you turn your Bibles to Luke chapter 22, once again, preparing for peril uh, may have been a, a little more fitting title for today's message, uh, but I decided dangers and daggers, you know, that sounds just a little more adventurous, right? Dangers and daggers. So um, we're going to see here that Jesus and his disciples, they are at most just a few hours from peril, at most. And uh, Jesus assures them in Matthew chapter 26, verse 31, You will all fall away because of me on this night, for it is written, I will strike down the shepherd, and the sheep of the flock shall be scattered. On this night, even the most courageous of the group, Peter, has been told that by morning, by the time the rooster crows three times, uh, he will have uh, denied association with Christ three times. It won't be long now. There's danger in the air. So he, meaning Jesus, focuses in verse 35, we see on preparing his disciples for the dangers that will lie ahead as they take the gospel to a new assignment. It's going to be an assignment that is unlike their past assignment in the land of Israel, the one they experienced before. If you remember when we studied Luke's chapters 9 and 10... A while back, Jesus briefly sent out the 12 in chapter 9, and then again uh, the 70 in chapter 10 to the lost sheep of Israel. And during that time, he forbade them from taking along any provisions for their journey. They were brief journeys. Uh, We don't know how long, but they were brief. But he forbade them from taking along anything with them. And as we studied those chapters, we discovered that the miraculous sustenance that Christ provided, it enhanced their understanding that he was now uh, the Messiah, the the promised Messiah to Israel that uh, God had sent. So such provision uh, often became supernatural with Jesus, like the the feeding of the 5,000 and then the feeding of the 4,000. His works supplied assurance that Jesus... He is Yahweh's Christ. You can't do works like that unless God is in it, right? Even the Pharisees admitted that. Who who could do this stuff if God wasn't in it? It's either there. God would have to be um, pulling one over on him, on the people to allow such miracles. And, And we know God is just. He's righteous. He wouldn't do that. But there was no denying that Jesus was Yahweh's Christ. In John 10, 38, he told the Pharisees, Though you do not believe me, at least believe the works, so that you may know and understand that the Father is in me, and I in the Father. So Christ, as we sang earlier, is divinity in human flesh. Colossians tells us that in him all the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form. His, his works supplied validation of that. Um, but the exercising of demons, the, the healing of the lepers, the raising of the dead, the supernatural sources of provision, they were never promised as a permanent dispensation to the church. They were never promised to continue uh, through every era. And our passage today proves just that, folks. It proves just that. Rather... For us, rather than faith by sight of miracles, the scriptural expectation of faith is that it will be the conviction of things not seen. Not seen. We're not looking for something. So Christians, we know that we dwell, that we function, that we reside in a natural realm. The things that we see function naturally, though we know God is involved um, and, and that he can even do miraculous healings, those types of things. We aren't seeing supernatural. That means beyond the laws of physics uh, today, uh, supernatural type things, such as the parting of the Red Sea or Jesus walking on 
water. We know we live by faith in a natural realm. And Jesus is soon to be crucified and then resurrected and then seated at the right hand of the Father in heaven. And so his previous command now, he says, that that command that he left them to not take anything with you, to not prepare for the unforeseen challenges ahead, we will, we will see that that is now fully revoked in our passage. Fully revoked. Please follow along as I read, beginning in verse 35 of Luke 22. And Jesus said to them, When I sent you out without money belt and bag and sandals, you did not lack anything, did you? They said, No, nothing. And Jesus said to them, But now, whoever has a money belt is to take it along. Likewise, also a bag. And whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. For I tell you that this which is written must be fulfilled in me, and he was numbered with the transgressors, for that which refers to me has its fulfillment. They said, Lord, look, here are two swords. And he said to them, it is enough. You know, if you ever visit a church and and here the missions director suggests to you or someone say that they want to send you out, you and your family, into the Amazon as missionaries, but then insist to you, don't worry, don't plan. Luke's not, Luke's chapters 9 and 10 tell you that he's going to provide everything for you as you go along the way. He assures that after you get there, he'll take care of you. Folks, run. Run far. Run fast. Um... Because whoever is telling you that didn't read the end of the book. He didn't finish Luke and see this passage. Stepping into the jungle unprepared. Well, that seems to us to sound really spiritual, right? Whoa, what faith. It sounds like a mighty faith, but in fact it is foolish. We function in a natural realm, and neglecting to prepare is actually being disobedient to Scripture today. Um, folks, we plan. We plan, we prepare the promise for provision that Jesus describes in verse 35. Well, it has already expired now in verse 36. The twelve did not lack anything before, but going forward, they are not assured it will always be this way. Just reminding me at the last second here today of a passage in Second Corinthians where Paul, the apostle, writes in chapter 12, Three times I was shipwrecked, a night and a day I have spent in the deep. I have been on frequent journeys in dangers from rivers, dangers from robbers, dangers from my countrymen, dangers from the Gentiles, dangers in the city, dangers in the wilderness, dangers on the sea, dangers among false brethren. I have been in labor and hardship, listen to this, through many sleepless nights in hunger and thirst, often without food, in cold and in exposure. Well, there were times the apostle had to learn to go without, folks. There were times he didn't have some things that he wished he would have had. Now, I'm not suggesting, as we as we continue today, that uh, pastors, missionaries, others in, in ministry shouldn't exercise faith. That, that they should, shouldn't uh, take a risk now and then. Every pastor, every missionary, every person in ministry, uh, when they enter a new location, they must by faith accept risk. There is risk. But those in Christian ministry also weigh the cost. They weigh the risks. They assess the unknowns and they, and they prepare for them. And we are even then to still anticipate, as Paul did, that we're going to run into times where, where we are threatened by unexpected perils, perhaps even dangers and daggers. It can happen. It can happen. This is what Jesus is assuring them. A danger will come. Danger will come. It begins tonight. Begins on this very night. So, so he tells them, be ready. Be ready. 
Folks, all responsible mission agencies require a certain threshold of training before they insert a missionary into a foreign land. It comes with a ter- territory. Most require some sort of financial reserves for an emergency medical extraction if needed. Uh, adequate provision, financial resources, theological training, if, if applicable, language, school. Those types of things and supplies, they're, they're prudent those are wise. Those aren't a lack of faith. I'd ask Chuck and Janet, just thinking of you, would you send out someone that you love to Thailand as a missionary without any preparation for what they're going to face? Face. You don't even have to reply to that. Not if you love them. Not if you love them. You're going to try to prepare them the best that you can. The Coleman's uh, retired now, but uh, retired last year, early last year, I think. Um, the Colemans were our long-term missionaries in Italy. Lasted some 32, 31 or 32 years. They had the pleasure of encountering some untrained, unprepared missionaries uh, who arrived ill-equipped, ill-trained. And sadly, uh, they also had to witness uh, some of these, many of these actually, return home just disillusioned and dejected of what they found in the mission field. Uh, in mere weeks, one story said that the individual had to return because they had not calculated the cost. They had not been trained properly. They were not ready for the social, the economic, and the emotional and spiritual uh, uh, pressures of the ministry. Pressures of the ministry. Um, think John Mark. You know, you go to Acts and, and Paul took him along and, and, and Barnabas as well and they took him with. And uh, there, there was a point there where it says he, ha- he abandoned, abandoned them and went back. And uh, there is ultimate redemption, of course. But uh, later on, Paul said, nah, I'm going to take Silas, all right? I need someone who can hang in there. Coleman's sending, sending agency team adopted a policy a while back that refuses, refused to send missionaries who have not been commissioned uh, and trained uh, in, in some way, shape, or form by a local church, at least supported in training. Uh, if a local body of Christ has not recognized you as gifted and trained, called and gifted, uh, they won't, and if they won't first invest in you and prepare you, team won't send you. That organization will not send you. That, folks, that is wisdom. That is not a lack of faith. We need preparation uh, for ministry. The disciples at this point, they have received almost three years of advanced missionary training from the king himself, ministering alongside Jesus. They, they have stood with him through trials. We see that in verse 28. Uh, they have encountered financial hardships, loneliness, spiritual warfare, social rejection, that's a very real thing in the mission field. Uh, exorcism, supernatural wonders. Folks, these people were experienced. The disciples were experienced. And tonight he says, you will all fall away. Going forward, Jesus tells them, you know, don't even you, don't you guys even go out there uh, without preparation. To employ a, a football analogy, since we have none. Um, no matter what type of ministry activity we engage in, uh, ministry does not resemble trick plays and, and a last-second Hail Mary. Uh, rather, Christians prepare well-executed ground game. It's fought hard in the trenches. It is yard by yard over a long drive, persevering through a long drive. And we, we, we all know it, it, it is not as exciting as the Hail Mary But we also know if you're a football fan, a good ground game, it lasts the season. It goes into the postseason. It wins championships, a good good ground game. So um, those those teams that we see rely on the trick plays, they're fun when they come through once in a while, but you got kind of a really bad team and they got to rely on the trick play, they they drop out before the postseason starts. They just aren't there. Um, some might say, you know, but, but I'm reading here and it looks to me like Jesus just says, you know, remember, uh, remember to pick up some money, grab a bag. Pick up some money, grab a bag, pack a sword, and then go. 
You know, though in just a couple hours, Jesus uh, is going to be arrested. His disciples are going to have to grab a bag quick and go. Because when evil strikes the shepherd, when he gets struck down, they're all going to be scattered. They're all going to be scattered. Jesus' arrest will be unexpected. It will be swift. It's going to be violent. It is going to be vicious on this night. And the disciples are going to soon be confronted with dangers and daggers. This is a savage midnight attack. The middle of the night. Um, boy, they're, they're going to be caught completely off, uh, by surprise. Have you ever, have you ever examined that uh, kind of bizarre passage in Mark chapter 14? little obscure, a little bizarre. Um, it tells us at the very moment Jesus was arrested with, with swords and clubs. That's how they came for him. All the disciples left Jesus and fled. And a young man, his name is, uh, remains anonymous. There, there's no name attached to this. But a young man was following Jesus wearing nothing but a linen sheet over his naked body. And the guards seized him. But he pulled free of the linen sheet and escaped naked. Boy, that's, that's unfortunate. I'm telling you, I could imagine on the next occasion when all the disciples were able to get together, maybe the next evening or something like that, and they're all together talking about what happened, that young man might have said to them, hey, you know, if anybody ever writes a book about everything that happens tonight, could you leave my name out of it? All right? Talk about embarrassing. You know, legend has it. This is true. Legend has it that this young man was the inventor of pajamas. Yeah, yeah. Um, when, when I first entered uh, mission work, Reed and I, domestically, it was, it was at a state capital atmosphere with, with people who are elected, you know, fairly, fairly sharp people, a lot of them. Uh, I got asked this question. You, you'd never know what's coming. And you're thinking you're going to get something, some profound question that you're just not going to be able to answer. And of all the questions that I was first asked, uh, the guy wondered, Hey, what is it about that naked guy in Mark chapter 14? And all I could reply was, you know, he just serves as the classic example of facing a peril unprepared. He wasn't ready. Uh, the lesson is this. When, when, when something completely unexpected occurs, you don't want to be the one left standing in your birthday suit. You don't. You don't. Lesson learned. Lesson learned. It's a little humorous, and I want it to be that way because you'll remember. You'll remember. You're never going to forget this after this day in ministry. You never want to put yourself in a situation where you will be the one left behind naked and afraid. That's a fact. You don't want to be left behind naked and afraid. That will preach. That'll preach. Um, the scenario will probably never present itself, but if I ever do get asked to do a guest lecture at a chapel for a seminary or a missions training institute or a Bible college of some kind like that, Mark 14 is going to be my text. <laughs> Naked and afraid is going to be my title. I'm not kidding. That's what I'm going for. I'm going, I'm going to find a way to motivate those young folks to finish their training for the ministry so they are ready. Um, does anybody remember how long it took the Apostle Paul to prepare after the road to Damascus? Yeah, two, three years, somewhere in there. Uh, Galatians tells us. And, and he began his training. When he did that, he already possessed a doctoral degree. He already knew his Bible, front to back, and, and he was a Pharisee. Uh, the point I want to make is this, uh, folks. Don't fear preparation. Don't see it as unspiritual. Bible college, seminary, missions training institute, apprenticeship, uh, deputization, whatever period that may be, don't despise it. It is far better to enter the ministry well prepared. Um. 
And don't forget to apply for your concealed carry permit. Isn't that what verse 36 says? Whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. Boy, these are the passages that you both love and fear as a pastor. What do you do with stuff like this? Huh? These obscure passages accompanied with no final explanation behind them. Uh, It's like crossing a minefield. I think there are two important things we need to remember with this verse. Number one, you don't want to create a doctrine out of it. All right? Number two, you also don't want to dismiss it entirely. That's what I see more often than anything. It gets dismissed entirely. We know the surrounding conversation here. The atmosphere is danger and preparation for it. Context is king when interpreting. In verse 37, Jesus is going to be numbered with transgressors. Uh, That means he is now an outlaw. He was going to be arrested, and and a quote from uh, uh, this messianic prophecy that we see, the suffering servant, it's from Isaiah 53. Important prophecy. And it says, uh, He poured out himself to death and was numbered with the transgressors, yet he himself bore the sin of many and interceded for the transgressors. So, Isaiah provides this specific prophecy that when Christ dies, he will be associated with outlaws. That's his reputation. You couldn't make a a prophecy more specific. He's going to be hanged on a cross between two common thieves. Very specific prophecy. Now, this does not mean that we should aspire to be outlaws. Alright? We're not allowed to take the sword reference to give license to violence. That is the mistake that Peter makes. That's his mistake later tonight. He he learns this lesson. In fact, I imagine imagine it is one of these two swords that Peter uses to strike the ear off the, the high priest's slave named Malchus. He probably grabbed one of these swords, and we see that later in verse 50. So Peter definitely got it wrong, got the messaging wrong, in at least two ways. So we can learn from him. We can learn from him. First, the kingdom of God cannot be advanced with the sword. That's number one. It's not for that purpose. Matthew 26, verse 52, For all those who take up the sword shall die by the sword. Seems simple enough. Seems simple enough. Uh, We are not outlaws. More significant, though, more significant is Jesus' statement to Peter that we see in John chapter 18, verse 11. He says, Put the sword into the sheath, Peter. The cup which the Father has given me, shall I not drink it? That's what's really going down here. Just as in Matthew chapter 16, Peter again tries to insert himself and thwart Jesus' progression to the cross. He's like, I'm not going to let that happen. In Matthew 16 verse 21, following Peter's confession that Jesus is the Christ... Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised up on the third day. Peter took him aside and began to rebuke Jesus, saying, God forbid it, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But Jesus turned to Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan. You are a stumbling block to me. You are not setting your mind on God's interests, but on man's. So, so Peter's blunder, his blunder is the same blunder he had previously. Uh, he commits with the sword once again uh, an attempt to thwart Jesus' uh, ambition, personal uh, ambitions for the cross. Peter puts his personal ambitions in front of, uh, of God's ambition. There are two problems here that we'll be reminded of in a couple weeks when we hit uh, these passages again. Um, Jesus rebukes Peter because he is trying to prevent Christ from accomplishing redemption. 
And Peter still believes that Christ's kingdom can be advanced through violence. Those are the two things. This is all we learn from Peter's sword. That's it. People take it way further than that. But Jesus nowhere gives his disciples an ultimatum of, of um, universal, nonviolent pacifism. He does not give that ultimatum. Uh, he actually says, believe it or not, he actually says, whoever has no sword is to sell his coat and buy one. You know, if you refuse to take the sword as literal, you have to also uh, take the other items, the money belt, the bag. You have to refuse to take them as literal as well. Uh, I've sadly read numerous commentators who've tried to explain this statement away so as to make an apology for what Jesus has said. It's almost in their commentaries, I'm really sorry that you had to read that. No one can really know what's going on here. It is, it is suggested, apologizing for the word of God. Um, for eons, folks, for eons, people have ignored this statement by Jesus and offered a misrepresentation of Jesus' rebuke to Peter, the one to put the sword back in its sheath. They, they've distorted that into a universal prohibition, declaring that never under any circumstances can a Christian take another life. Another human life. Folks, but absolute pacifism is not in view in this verse. It is not in view here. Um, folks, that, that is, if I understand them right, that's the Dalai Lama. Okay? That is. That's a different religion. If you read the Bible front uh, cover to cover. And see what goes on. There's a lot of danger. There's a lot of danger. Uh, uh, a lot of daggers. You know, Hacksaw Ridge. Some of you have probably seen that movie. Parental guidance advised. All right. But Hacksaw Ridge was a, a good movie about the World War II invasion of Okinawa. That, that invasion was horrific. Some of the theology that was included in there was also horrific. All right. But it is a story of a man named Desmond Doss. I brought this up about a year ago that uh, he was a pacifist, and he would not uh, fire a weapon. He, he would not do it, and uh, there was this big, big uh, rigmarole with him in whether he could serve as a medic without discharging his weapon in basic training. Uh, folks, he, he, he defended that on his faith as a Seventh-day Adventist, which there are problems there. There are problems there. I'm not going to go into it. But um, holding that view means a Christian could not serve as a soldier. You cannot be a police officer. You can't be a member of a security detail or the secret service if you hold that view. But in all of these roles, we need Christians. We need Christians. We need generals. Courageous generals who are Christians. We need admirals who are courageous. Uh, police chiefs and sheriffs who are courageous Christians. Think of pacifism and not able to discharge a weapon. I would have to think, Gigi, you tell me. Police academy. Are you going to be able to graduate and move up to the ranks of chief if you refuse to discharge your weapon in, in, in police academy, you won't get out of the academy. You have to be willing to defend others. Same with a general. If you won't complete basic training and go up through, you'll never arise to general to, uh, to, um, that, to have that influence over others as a Christian. It, it, you just can't. It just doesn't fit. Think of Cornelius. In Acts chapter 10, uh, he was never told. No, none of the centurions in Scripture were ever told, you know, lay down your sword, now follow me. That would have been the Dalai Lama. It really would have been. No, they are a force for good when they have a moral compass. When they have a moral compass. And, and that's the issue uh, that needs to be addressed here. Um, pacifism for this passage yields an unacceptable interpretation. It is. Uh, that is not what Jesus says. He tells his disciples if they do not already have a sword, sell your coat and go buy one. It's not a, it's not a reference to a Swiss army knife. 
It's not a, it's not a reference to uh, a fillet knife for fishing when you're camping. It's not. Uh, folks, the Greek here indicates a long dagger. That's why it's called a sword. It's not a battle sword like you'd see in Braveheart, but it's a long dagger. It has a hilt on the end to keep the hand from slipping. So this is a, a thrusting weapon. It's not something to butter your toast with. It is a thrusting weapon. Uh, the context of this discussion is preparation for danger. That's what we're talking about. That is the context. Not, 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 not a casting call for celebrity chef, you know. This is danger that Jesus is preparing them for, so the question has to be answered. Since a sword is never to be used for advancing the kingdom, then for what? Then for what? Um, I think the, the one reasonable expected answer becomes obvious. Previously, Jesus sent out his disciples locally with provision and with protection. Now he's going to send them out globally in a dangerous and unpredictable world. Uh, uh, Circumstances that swarm with roadside bandits. Murderers eager to take anything you have, even your life, without any concern about what happens to you. Think about downtown Seattle. Dangerous. Dangerous. Think about what's going on in Portland today. Very dangerous. Folks, it needs to be said and stated, they are not protesting there. Those are rioters. They are rioters. Peaceful protesters do not conceal their identity with hoods and goggles. They don't hurl blunt objects. They don't burn buildings. They do not threaten other citizens. Folks, true peacemakers, they assemble in the daytime. They assemble peacefully. Peaceful protests are orchestrated in a way where their objective of what they want to do cannot be hijacked by some other interest and redirected by evil radicals. You know, the coordinators of these events are complicit with violence. Violence and hatred, uh, we, need, we need to think, folks. The world is violent enough as it is. Um, you know, I've made mention on occasion that, that in theory I don't have an objection to become a martyr for the gospel. In theory. Don't know, don't know about the pain that would come with it, but in theory. I do not have an objection to becoming a martyr for the sake of the gospel. But I do not have an interest in dying or watching one of my family members die at the hands of a common criminal. I don't have any interest in that. That is not becoming a martyr for the faith. It it is not. Uh, We will not be awarded the crown of life that goes to all martyrs for dying during a random carjacking. That, That thug, he doesn't even realize that you're a Christian. Folks, that, suffering that type of, of terminal ending is not suffering or, or enduring persecution for the faith. That, that's just rolling over and becoming a victim. That's just becoming a victim. Folks, if you're coming home from the grocery store, I'd tell my wife, hit him in the head with a can of Spam. Really. Seriously. Poke him through the eye with an umbrella. Whatever you have got to do if you must. There is a difference between dying for the sake of the gospel and surrendering cowardly uh, to arbitrary violence. There is a difference. Whether it is to defend myself or my wife or an innocent civilian in in a gas station, if I can stop a bad guy, I am going to stop them. Christians need to make their voices heard. Stop being cowards on this. So, so passive. So passive towards violence. Just allowing it to go and eat us up. Um, that's about as far as I want to push this interpretation. Uh, the disciples are soon to navigate an incredibly depraved and wicked world. The Bible gives, gives allows Christians to practice reasonable measures of self-defense. In fact, I believe Jesus here would advise it. 
He would advise it. You know, that ability to wield a dagger, or a long, long dagger, short sword, that was a significant deterrent in those days. It was sharp, very significant deterrent. Unless you're a crocodile dundee, which I don't think you're here, you're not allowed to wield a large knife in New York City. So check your local ordinances. But on an isolated road to Damascus, or an isolated section out in the middle of nowhere on the road to Damascus, if a thief were to rob you, if he were to attempt to kill you, he realized an ambulance wasn't just a 911 call and five minutes away. He knew it. He knew it. If a bandit were to risk or suffer a severe laceration, he knew he wasn't going to last to the ER to get five more units of blood. Things didn't move that quick back then, folks. They didn't have the medical care. Uh, to face someone who was wielding a knife was a very dangerous situation for any robber. Uh, the, the life is in the blood. Everybody knew that back then. Uh, it, wasn't, it wasn't available in the way that it is today, the medical care. I honestly believe that this statement about the sword or dagger is Jesus advising his disciples to prepare themselves for going into a world uh, against the dangers that would encounter them when taking the gospel to an unpredictable, unpredictable world, a violent and unpredictable world. There exists no prerogative in the Bible, no prerogative in the Bible to allow your wife or your family member to become victims to cruel and merciless thugs. There isn't. That's why self-defense is, is enshrined in our Constitution in a number of different ways. Earlier, kind of close in this way, earlier I read to you a story of Abraham marshalling over 300 of his men to go and rescue his nephew Lot. You know, you might think, well, that's quite a stretch from modern-day Port St. Lucie, um, but I chose Abraham for a couple of reasons. And be aware, this is my, where I might skid off topic a little bit here, all right? I don't, we don't get to talk... Anybody remember last time we talked about this? Never. So you don't get to talk about this much, just a little bit as we close. But this is why I chose Abraham. He and his family lived after the flood, and God's giving of the Noahic covenant, a covenant, by the way, that every reputable theologian agrees was the establishment of human government. That's where government started in Genesis 9, verse 6, in its infancy. Uh, God commands Noah, whoever sheds man's blood by man his blood shall be shed, for in the image of God he made man. And because evil had become so great upon the earth before the flood, God says from now on, man is to come together to execute justice, to govern, uh, actually execute God's justice. In the New Testament, Romans chapter 13 verse 4 says, if you do what is evil, be afraid, for the governing authorities do not bear the sword for nothing, For it is a minister of God, an avenger who brings wrath on the one who practices evil. Bearing the sword there in the New Testament is a phrase referring to the government's God-given authority to enforce capital punishment. From Noah through the New Testament to today, um, since God gave that command to Noah, capital punishment has never in Scripture been revoked. It never has. Uh, It has actually only been reinforced in the New Testament. In Genesis 14, the presence of kings assures that human government was already long established by the time of Abraham. We also know that Abraham lived prior to Mount Sinai. So, So, nobody can claim his story only applies to God's covenant with Israel uh, and that this has no application at all. The question is, can the moral compass of kings and their kingdoms, can it turn south? Can the compass, the moral compass of kings and their kingdoms go south? According to Romans 13, then, what is essential in order for a government to function as God's minister? What is essential? if a government is going to function as God's minister. They have to possess a moral compass sensible enough to discern good from evil. Does that make sense? 
For its established function by God, or its ordained function by God, is to punish evil and reward good. That is the function of government. Think about this. Even when uh, Christians were persecuted under Nero, Apostle Paul, one of them, the Senate and the Roman Legion still recognized that stealing property, bad. Murder, bad. Perjury, other false testimony, bad, right? The moral compass of humanity was still somewhat uh, aligned with the truth of, uh, of God's word. A government has to be able to discern good from bad. They must They must. Once they can no longer do that, there there comes a point when they can no longer function as God's minister for good. Because they don't even know what good is. Consider Adolf Hitler. Murder of the defenseless, good. Good for humanity, he said. Confiscation of private property, good. Good. Perjury and deceit, he deemed, because it's expedient, because it gets the result that we want, uh, it serves the greater good. So lying to the people, good. What happens when a government calls good evil and evil good? Think of Hitler. God takes him down. God takes him down. Could Christians in good conscience, this is the question, Fight that war and storm the beaches of Normandy. Could Christians do that? Yes. Many did. Many died. Does there ever come a point when Christians can deem it biblical and even necessary to join a war against a senile tyrant who himself or herself cannot discern bad from good? Yes. Yes. Uh, Folks, have you ever read the last six indictments against King George made by the colonies in the Declaration of Independence? You should. You should. Um, There are occasions when kings and governments go bad. Really bad. Abraham pursued corrupt kings when he had an unjustly imprisoned nephew named Lot. Uh, Many other slaves were taken. Uh, Now we are... As Christians, when we look at that, we are not outside civil law. We are not outside moral law. We are not outlaws. Did I make that clear enough? Good. Um, You know, when Liam Neeson's daughter was taken prisoner on on that movie Taken, he should have called police, all right? That's what we would do. That's what we would do. We would get the police involved. They are our friends, right, right, Gigi? Um... That's what we should do. There, there are no Jason Bournes amongst us. We do not take vengeance into our own hands. That is not Christian. That is not Christian. But when Abraham was left with no other option, no other circumstances, no other recourse, he and his, and his men acted against tyrant kings who had no moral compass, could not discern evil from good. They chased those kings down in battle array. Hebrews 7 describes it as a slaughter. They freed every slave, including Lot, and their personal goods were returned to them. And Melchizedek, whose name means king of righteousness, king of Salem or Jerusalem, which means king of peace, gladly received Abraham's offering of a tenth of the spoils of war. And he served Abraham bread and wine, and he blessed Abraham, saying, Blessed be Abram. Of God Most High, possessor of heaven and earth, and blessed be God Most High, who has delivered your enemies into your hand. God did it. God did it. He used Abram, but God did it. When the dust had settled from that, Abram said to the ungodly king of Sodom, I will not take a thread or a sandal that does not belong to me, nothing that is yours. So essentially, I only leave today, uh, he says, with that which lawfully belongs to me. Abraham knew good from evil. He knew it. I personally believe you don't have to in order to be a Christian. 
There will probably be a diversity of opinions in this room, but I, I personally believe, and, and I have adjusted my kind of posture position uh, slightly over time on this, but I personally believe that World War II was just from our side. Um, I, I believe the American Revolution was just, and I believe that Christians could bear the sword alongside George Washington as he crossed the Delaware Delaware River, um, liberating then colonies from a tyrannical king who burned our towns, who killed the people, hired savages as mercenaries to, to thwart the villages and waged war against the merchant ships that we had bringing our goods. That's what was going on. That's what was going on. That's what the colonies were up against. Uh, the tea thing, don't... That's, that's, just bad, that's just bad history class in high school. It's not the tea thing. It's not the tea thing. I would have fought alongside George Washington. I would have fought alongside Ulysses S. Grant. I would have fought under Eisenhower on D-Day if asked, standing against established governments who refused to discern right from wrong, unable to be a minister of God for good. Folks, Christian, Christians need to Really think. There's a lot of revisionism about our history going on out there. A lot of lies being spread. We don't talk about this a lot. We don't get beat over the head with this. But the fact remains. My, my impression is the American revolutionaries, they were patriots who desperately wanted to live in peace. They wanted to be left alone. And... Uh, they challenged a king who had re- redefined evil as good because it was expedient. I don't think anyone can deny here that God blessed America. He has. God has blessed America. Um, not much is new under the sun or in the last 2,000 years. Christians traverse an increasingly dangerous world, secular world as we bear the gospel. And, and as, as uh, Christians... I would, as a last resort, a final resort, bear the sword to defend my family and my life and my country. I would. It would be better to defend my country. I, ra- I would rather not. Honestly, I would rather not have to do that in any circumstances. So here's the point I want to leave with you about the Ten Commandments. You know, America America has a great constitution that has stood the test of time so far, so far. Uh, We are a constitutional republic. That is our form of government. And it, meaning our constitution, it is the civil law of the land. It is the supreme law of the land. Not a bill passed by Congress, nor an executive order by a president... They are not the supreme law of the land. Neither is the Supreme Court. The Constitution of the United States is the supreme law, the Bill of Rights. We have inalienable rights of life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That's what our Constitution says. Where's the problem with that? I grew up understanding this. I did. I was taught this in school and understanding this in school. Apparently, our children are no longer hearing this in school. Where are they going to hear it? Where are they going to hear it? Um, This is a dangerous world. We need governments that know evil and good and the difference between. We better get serious because I don't want to bear a sword. I don't want to have to defend myself against something going on outside of our home. I don't want that. We better get serious. God has not assured us that he has provided any such miraculous provision that we won't have to face that. So what do we do? What do we do? A good step, a good first step, is for Christians to remind our children and our neighbors of the Ten Commandments, the Ten Commandments, that they may know good from evil, that we may once again, as a society, even as a secular society, to know that there is judgment, coming, to know that there is accountability, and these things are right, and these things are wrong. We've got to take uh, the gospel and morality back to the culture. Apparently, they aren't getting that in school anymore either. Nothing about what is right. 
and what is wrong. Think about that. Um, that's tough, but we can't just hide it under the couch. Stuff we need to discuss. I'm going to be up here. If you're new, I see a few new faces. Um, I'm going to be up front afterwards where there's a little bit of space. I'd love to talk to you. And uh, got a little way back there. Let's pray. Father, we are so grateful that we have uh, your word, the commandments to show us what is right, what is dignified, what is honest and true. And Lord, uh, as as our culture, our government, uh, our neighbors, our, our surrounding atmosphere is, is now seeming to regress into not having any understanding what good is. They will call murder good. They will call lying, if it is expedient, then it's the greater good. Yet, Lord, they've redefined good. It's causing an upheaval in our culture. Father, uh, I pray that we always, as Christians, uh, align ourselves to the good as it is found in your word that we would teach our young people, starting with these Awana children and our families and ourselves, uh, teach the truth about what is good uh, and what is evil. Lord, uh, our country has been sold a lie. And yet, Lord, by the power of your word and by the conviction of the Holy Spirit, uh, you, can, you can rebuild your church stronger, Lord, as nothing ever prevails against it. And that would be a great influence on our culture around us. Lord, we would pray for revival. Not knowing what your spirit has in store, but we would pray if we would be faithful to share the gospel, to be persistent on giving the truth of the good news of Christ to our neighbors and those that we encounter day to day. Lord, we are, we are confident that you will do some great work with it, Lord. So convict us of that. Glorify yourself through your Son. It's in Jesus' name we pray.